Our sermon today comes from the book of Acts and the book of Philippians. The book of Acts and the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles with you or a device or the blue Bible uh, in the chair in front of you, we are starting a new series in the book of Philippians. So we're going to read the first two verses there eventually. And we're going to be flipping back and forth, so you're going to have to work hard today. Philippians and then the book of Acts, mostly chapter 16. And while you find that, let me ask you a question. When you pick up a, a new book to read, do you read the preface? Are you a preface reader? Or you just skip the preface and you just go right to chapter 1 because that's why you got the book. You want to read the content and you just don't care about the preface. You know, the preface is the, you know, three or four pages before chapter 1. It tells you about the author. Usually he says thank you to some people. It tells you how the book came about and what he was thinking about. Maybe the purpose serves as a kind of an introduction. And so today, if you're a preface reader, today is your day. Uh, because we're starting this new series in Philippians, and I think it's in, always important to have the, the context before we have the content. And so the context is what we find in mostly the book of Acts. So that's where we're going to be. How did Paul even get to know the Philippians? How did he come to even write a letter back to the Philippians? And if you're a dive right in person, you just want to get to chapter 1 and get to the content, and then you were called here today to suffer. And I'm sorry about that, but that's part of the Christian life as well, and I'll try to make it as interesting as I can, and then you'll hurry back next week, because then we'll be in the content. The genesis of Paul's letter to the Philippians is located, like as I said, in the book of Acts, and I love reading through the book of Acts. It's the first book I preached on in 2002. Um, It recounts the advancement of Christianity along the tracks of controlled chaos. Let me say that again. It recounts the advancement of Christianity. I mean, Christ has died. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And now what's going to happen? What are the actions that are going to take place? And it's sometimes thought of as the acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts or actions of the disciples. And so it's the advancement of Christianity along the tracks of controlled chaos, controlled chaos. Because when you read through the book of Acts, it's just story after story of chaotic, seemingly chaotic events. On the surface level, it's all kinds of ups and downs and twists and turns. And just when you think things are going to smooth out, then it goes upside down or you go into a tunnel. And it's really interesting to read through. But although there's all these chaotic moments... The writer understands, we understand as believers, that there's something that's undergirding that, something that's running underneath all that chaos, and that is the sovereign control of God. No matter the twists and turns, no matter the ups and downs, there's a track running underneath all these events, and that is the control of the Holy Spirit. And when I thought about this, the picture that came to mind maybe obviously is riding a roller coaster. I don't know how many are roller coaster riders you like to ride those things well I can remember riding my very first roller coaster I think I was about eight and my family went down to Six Flags over Texas which is in Dallas and they said Paul you know you have a little guy standing outside you know if you're this high you can ride this ride and so I I met the requirements and I got on the gold rusher gold rusher 
Now, the Gold Rusher was not the biggest roller coaster in the park, but it was the only one I had ever been on, so it seemed pretty big to me. And only a couple of things I remember. First of all, when you get on the roller coaster and you sit down, they put the safety bar down. It didn't seem too safe. I mean, there was a lot of wiggle in this bar. I remember that. And then I remember, you know, kind of going out of the terminal and turning. And then that first click, clank. You know, and it kind of drags you up this really, you know, four-mile hill is what I recall. And then you, you take this deep death plunge. And what I remember after the deep death plunge was crying the whole time. That's all I did. I'm eight years old, white knuckles on the safety bar that's flapping up and down. And I'm thinking... Is this how parents get rid of children they don't like anymore? I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking. They bring them to a park, and you go, this is awesome, and then you, don't, you never leave the park because you die on these death-defying sort of falls. But I, but I noticed my, my older sister is sitting next to me. She's not even holding on to the bar. What is she doing? She, hands in the air, laughing, squealing, laughing at her younger brother. Why was she able to do that? Why was she able to completely let go, throw her hands up in the air, and no matter the twist, the turn, the upside down, the, 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 the sideways, the speed, nothing bothered her. Why was that? Because she was certain the track underneath her was going to get her safely back home. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's what the book of Acts is about. All kinds of twists and turns, all kinds of ups and downs. All kinds of upside-down moments. But Paul is trying to relay to the people in Philippi, hey, you're getting on a wild roller coaster ride. And there are going to be all these things, but I need you to be certain that the Holy Spirit is a track underneath you. And no matter how you may feel at any given moment, you can throw your hands up in the air. And you can shout for joy because you know you're going to get safely home. And everything God wants to accomplish, he is going to accomplish. And so that's part of my prayer as we read through the book of Acts. One of the main themes is the theme of joy. It's mentioned 20 times in just four chapters. Let me just point that out to you in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. For some of us, these will be familiar verses. Philippians 4. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and in case you didn't read the first line, again, I say rejoice. Here it is two times in one verse. Let your reasonableness, or better translated gentleness, be known to everyone. And all the twists and turns, don't be anxious, be gentle. Well, how can you be gentle in a chaotic culture? Because you know this, this is the circle verse, the Lord is at hand. The Lord Almighty is at hand. This is what is a controlling feature about Paul. <clears throat> he knows the Lord is at hand. He's the track under, undergirding all the twists and turns in Paul's life. So don't be anxious about anything, verse 6. But in prayer, in throwing your hands up, give thanksgiving and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. So my hope for us as a church, we live in chaotic times. 
We live in times that feel like a lot of twists and turns upside down, going in a tunnel, deep plunges, that we wouldn't be the church of white-knuckle control. That when people intersected you as an individual or us as a church, they would say, wow, they're not anger. They're not angry. They're not anxious. They're very gentle. It's as if they know something else is underneath that's going to get them safely home. Point number one. Now, when you get to the book of Acts, which is how Paul actually gets to Philippi, you might take, let's go back to Acts chapter 1, because you might say the roller coaster ride begins in Acts chapter 1. Here, Jesus has been resurrected. He's talking to his disciples. This is one of the last conversations he has with them, and he says this in Acts chapter 1. This is the, think about the roller coaster leaving the terminal. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will, be, we, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. He's looking at his disciples and saying, okay, guys, it's going to be a wild ride. Who's ready? We're not going to stay in the safety confines of our home, Jerusalem. We're going to move out to the geography around us. We're even going to the Samaria, Samaritans. These are people that we wouldn't normally encounter. And even past that, we're going to go out to the ends of the world. This is where the ride is going to take you, to the very ends of the world. And, he, and Jesus wants them to be sure, be totally confident that the Holy Spirit is going to be with them the whole way. So no matter the twist and turn, Jesus is saying, don't worry, guys. You can throw your hands up in the air. You can enjoy. You can have joy. Even if you're in prison like Paul is writing this letter, Because you know that twist, that turn, is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, all the twists and turns, they begin immediately after verse 8. But I want us to fast forward to chapter 15, the very end of chapter 15, before we get to chapter 16, which is where Paul encounters the Philippians. Chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul and Barnabas... This is the first missionary team. They've already gone out on their first mission. They've sort of moved out of of Israel, and they've moved into what's now called modern-day Turkey. Uh, Galatia, it was called. Paul and Barnabas, they say to each other, they have this conversation, hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word. In other words, let's go back and see how everybody is. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with with them John, who's also called Mark. This is the Mark of the Gospel. Hey, let's take Mark with us. But Paul thought it best not to take Mark because Mark had withdrawn from the first missionary journey and hadn't continued the work. So Mark joined the first missionary journey, but halfway through, he got cold feet. He got afraid. He got tired. I don't know what he got, but he decided, I'm abandoned ship. And Paul's like, I'm not taking another journey with this guy. I mean, we need him, we, we've got, we put weight on him to, to help us, and he bails, I'm not going to take him back. And there arose, verse 39, such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. I think this event weighs on Paul the rest of his life. 
I think it weighs on him, especially here in Philippians, because one of the themes of Philippians is unity. And I want you just to notice the disagreement here. It's not about theology. It's not about doctrine. It's not even about, like, philosophy of ministry. It's a relational problem. This is probably a lot of the problems you have. They're relational problems. There's some kind of tension in my workplace, in my family, in our culture, and they tend to be relational. And Barnabas wants to take Mark, and Paul doesn't. And it rises to such a, a way that they split up. Now, the reason I think this is important and is important for us as part of the preface is now I'm going to ask you to t- turn back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is Paul's main thing. Hey, people are going to run across you wherever you are in your workplace, in your home. I want them to see your manner of life and reflect on the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or not, here's what I want you to do. I want to make sure that you are standing firm, what? In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Do you hear that? I think this is Paul's way of saying, hey, Philippians, you're going to get out in this chaotic culture. There's going to be twists and turns. And you're going, to need to, you're going to need to strive side by side. If you get disunified, if you get disagreement, then there's going to be problems, not just for these two people. The problems could spread sort of like a disease into the rest of the, of the church. And then he gives you a, a particular example. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 verse 2. So he's saying in the beginning, hey, this unity is important, and there's a particular issue in this church I want to address. I entreat these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So these are women that Paul partnered with in the progress of the gospel but now they're not side by side they're sideways and it's affecting the the fellowship and you know it's a secondary issue because he said these are names that are written in the book of life this isn't a theological issue this isn't a doctrinal issue this is some kind of relational issue and he's saying that these people need to get unified because this disunity in this relationship could actually spill over into the congregation, and Paul doesn't want to have that happen. And I think, I think Paul looks back with some regret about his own division with Barnabas. Somehow, this one issue of Mark drove us apart. In Paul's last letter, he actually ask Mark to come and see him to be an encouragement to him. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in a, in a sermon that if we get to the end of the ministry year, June 2021, and we're joyfully unified at Christ Community Church, I will throw my hands up in the air and consider it a great successful year. There are lots of other things we hope to accomplish, lots of goals that we have. But in our environment, with, with the virus and the election and the other unrest that is happening either racially or in a city or other ways, 
It's just so easy to get sideways with each other, not on doctrinal issues, not on theological issues, but relational issues. And if those things begin to creep in, it can easily affect the effectiveness of our proclamation of the gospel. So Paul, it's a good, timely book for us because he's wanting us to have joy and unity. Now let's look at his encounter actually with the people of Philippi, Acts chapter 16. Let's begin our reading in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So these are all sort of in modern-day Turkey. It's called Asia Minor in the Bible. And they're, they're, they've been to these places, and they're just going to go to the next city. The next city doesn't know anything about Jesus, so they just assume, hey, we're going to walk in and at least start telling people about Jesus. But they were forbidden, notice in verse 6, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So then they come up to another place, Mysia, and they attempt to go to a certain town, Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them to go there. So they pass by and they end up down in a place called Troas. Now, I love this little passage. And here's why I love it. These two giant men of the faith have no idea what to do. And I love that. I love it. I mean, why wouldn't any town be a good town for the gospel? Nobody knows Jesus. But somehow they're trying to walk into a, to, to the lives of these people. And for whatever was happening, they were like, no doors are opening for us here. So let's just go to the next town and the next town. And do you see what's happening? This is the roller coaster ride. They're charting a course this way that seems so obvious. And the Holy Spirit says, you know, we're going to take a 90 degree turn right here. I wonder how often that's happened in your life. You're going down a track, looks like a good track, looks like everything's going well, and then somehow something happens and says, you know what, we're not going to go that way anymore. We're going to go this way. And at that moment, can you throw your hands up in the air and just say, I'm on the track. I'm not controlling where the car goes. I don't need to have a white-knuckle grip about everything that's going to happen in my life. I can just say, God, somehow, for some reason, whether I see it now or I don't, you want me to go this way, and I'm going to, I'm going to rejoice. I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to be gentle because I'm not in control. I'm not trusting myself. I'm trusting the Lord. Well, they go down to this area, a city called Troas, which is near the Aegean Sea. Now, they're on the western side of Turkey, and they can look across the Aegean Sea, and they can see islands, Greek islands, that represents the boundary between Asia and Europe. And Paul gets a vision from the man from Macedonia. This is a geographic area in Greece. And they come, and it says this, And a vision appeared to Paul the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging them, come, come over to Macedonia. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us there. It would be hard to overstate the importance here of this moment. When Paul gets on a boat, gets to Greece, and steps, first time with the gospel on the European continent. This is like a meteor coming down and hitting the edge of the ocean. 
that its waves are going to affect almost every country in the world. That, that the gospel now is coming in. Now, Paul and Silas don't realize how big this step is, but this is a huge step that's going to affect so many people. It's affecting us right now. This step, 2,000 years ago, is part of the ripple effect of what we're feeling right now. There's an interesting book out by Tom Holland called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And he just charts how Christianity has reshaped cultures, and particularly in the West. And you might say the revolution began when Paul and Silas stepped off the boat. One little step is going to mean so much. One, one, one little faithful step. You might not see the effects of it, but one little faithful step can mean so much. Turns out this little piece of information about them going to Philippi is important. It's a, a leading city. It's a, a Roman city. So they come up and they, they come to, to uh, Philippi. And you see there, it's a, a leading city. It's a, a Roman city. And when you hear this, you, you think, okay, this is an important piece of information. It's, Philippi was sometimes referred to as miniature Rome. It's a Roman colony. Even though it's a Greek city, it gets its identity from Rome. And the people in Philippi enjoyed being having a passport stamped with superpower, Rome. You're from Rome. Because you're from Rome, you get legal counsel. If you're from Rome, you can acquire property. If you're from Rome, you have respect. If you're from Rome, you have wealth. If you're from Rome, you have an identity. You're somebody. If you're not from Rome, you're stuck in the Roman Empire. You're basically a slave. But these people, they had the identity of being Roman citizens, and that was very important. There was a lot of retired military in Philippi. If you drove around Philippi, you'd see the the people with little chariots. And if they had windows in their chariots, they'd have the little flags. You know, you see sometimes that people put up with sports their favorite team. They'd have the Roman flag flapping in the air because we're from Rome. Even though we're in Philippi, we're really Roman citizens. And their zealous identity with Rome turns out to be a stumbling block for some of the early Christians. These early Christians, Paul's trying to say, hey, I know your identity was wrapped around your citizenship in Rome. But now you have a new king. And you have a new citizenship. Turn with me to chapter 3 of uh, Philippians, verse 20. You'll, we'll see it here. But our citizenship is in heaven. You hear that? Our citizenship. I, I know you think of your citizenship being in Rome, but our citizenship is actually in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we're awaiting a Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So just imagine what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, hey, I know you guys. You've gotten your identity from being a Roman citizen. And you get your identity from being a Roman citizen. You get your wealth from being a Roman citizen. You get your protection from being a Roman citizen. You get your legal rights from being a Roman citizen. Everything you get, you're awaiting Rome to give it to you. 
Now we want to take all that identity and place it on Jesus. My identity, my wealth, my comfort, how I think about myself is not patriotic, patriotically wrapped up in Philippi. It's wrapped up in this new kingdom called Christ. And that was a problem for the citizens in Philippi. I think that's a problem today. If we just have the right president, just get the right person on the Supreme Court, if we just get a governor who would do, then I'm waiting on those things. If I could just get the school board to do what I want. See what I'm saying? It's very easy to transfer your citizenship and your value to the government And we're not saying those mean nothing. We're just trying to reorient to say, no, all of that's now placed in Christ. It's amazing how practical Philippians can be. I want to close here by just looking at uh, the, the three personal encounters Paul has with his first three Philippians. Lydia, a slave girl, and a jailer. Chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, they've gone to Philippi. We go outside of the gate. We're going outside of the city to a riverside where we suppose there would be a place of prayer. So they think there are some people here, maybe some Jewish people, maybe some Gentiles who believe in God. They're called God-fearers. And that there might be a place on a Sabbath, which is a Saturday. And they sat down and spoke. Notice this. They spoke to the women who had come together. So it's a women's prayer meeting they're interrupting. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Her hometown, although she had a, she, she was a wealthy person, she had two homes, one, one in Philippi, one in Thyatira. And she's a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. She's a Gentile woman who believes in the God of the Old Testament. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come in, come into the city, come into my house, and stay. The very last event in Acts chapter 16 happens inside of Lydia's house. She hosts the first home church in Philippi. And there's lots of things to notice about this, but a couple things I want to point out. First of all, this great Western movement of Christianity started at a women's prayer meeting. I love that. Didn't start at the palace of the king. It started with a few women who feared God, were ready to hear his voice. So women, God can use you. I mean, never think, oh, it's just three or four of us having coffee and talking about the Bible. I mean, who knows what God might do with some faithful, God-fearing women. And that's what's happening here. And what you're supposed to notice here, another thing you're supposed to notice is the outside-to-inside movement. It started outside the city, and now the church is actually inside the city. That's an, an important movement. Where Christianity is going to move into a culture. It's never meant to be built as a, a thing that's a bubble over here and doesn't intersect the culture. We're not supposed to just live in this bubble and say, we're all, everybody okay? Good. No, we're supposed to move inside the city and 
we're supposed to have an effect on the city. And we're not going to have an effect by power grabs, but by gentleness, by displaying a, a different citizenship. Same is true today. Second person, a slave girl. We don't know how old she is. Maybe she's 10. Maybe she's 12. Maybe she's 14. She has some kind of spirit of divination. She somehow can, with some predictability, know the future. She's a fortune teller. But she's a slave. So she gets abused. She makes money. And even though she stays a slave, it makes the people, these men who control her, wealthy. And she encounters Paul, and Paul casts out this demon. And the first thing these men who are owners of her realize is they have a really significant decrease in my bank account. And I don't like that. I don't like some outsider coming in and and sort of doing something that's going to control my money because that controls so many other things about me. And look at verse 20 through 23. So they drag, and when they brought, they dragged the people into, Paul and Silas, into the city. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. Notice carefully, they're disturbing our city. We don't, we don't want an inside presence touching our idols. They advocate, verse 21, customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. Hear that? We're Romans. This is how Romans work. We don't want somebody touching that. And the crowd joined with them, and the magistrates tore the garments off Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat Paul and Silas with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows, they threw them into a prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. The point I want to make here is that the church is an inside-the-city organization. It's a foothold. It's a beachhead. And when we come and we proclaim the truth about God, it's going to upset some idols. It's going to upset some ways Americans do things. But we're saying, yeah, we're Americans too, but we have another allegiance, and it's to Christ, and that's reordered our ethics. It's reordered our world, and some people are going to respond to it like Lydia, and some people are going to want to inflict suffering. The idols that might be shaken from our own culture, independence, wealth, security, comfort, sexual freedom, gender identity. The list is a long list. But when we enter into the, the culture with a biblical ethic, we can expect resistance, just like at Philippi. There isn't anything new. And finally, I wish we had more time here, the final encounter is with a jailer. So it's always fascinating to me to just think about this first church. It's made up of a, of a very successful businesswoman who's a Gentile. It's made up of a a slave girl is made up of a jailer, a prison guard. Anybody can hear Christ. Anybody can respond to Christ. <clears throat> and you can read the story on your own, but the point I want to make is that Paul and Silas's suffering lead to the jailer's salvation. 
Paul and Silas's suffering lead to the jailer's salvation. I don't know if you think like this, but this is how I think when I read through the Bible in this passage. Okay, Paul and Silas went to a prayer meeting, and what did that lead to? Lydia's salvation. Why can't everybody get saved that way? That's what I think. Why do we have to have suffering that leads to salvation? I'm just good for prayer meetings. I'm happy to meet anybody in a prayer meeting, tell them about Jesus, and somebody says, I want to meet Jesus. I I mean, I'm down with that. But why suffering? Why do, why do we have to have suffering as a means? Because God has his mind on a jailer. And from the work of the Holy Spirit, the best way to meet this jailer is through suffering. So we're on this roller coaster. Sometimes it's easy to go to a prayer meeting and lift up your hands and see God move. Sometimes you might be chained to a jailer. And that's how God is going to move. One commentator writes this about this passage. As so often happens, the sovereignty of God takes its most seemingly mysterious twist and turns in the ordering of circumstances. You hear that? Why does God accomplish salvation by introducing his servants into prison, under arrest, under the lash? To this, no answer is given. He's the Lord. See, sometimes the gospel moves ahead with the prayer meeting. Sometimes the gospel moves ahead in the prison prison cell. But underneath, underneath, this is the Holy Spirit. So that's my prayer. This preface is part of a prayer that I have for us, that we would be joyfully unified as a church that as people encountered us as a church, they wouldn't encounter people who are angry or anxious. They would be gentle, reasonable. These are reasonable people. Why? Because we know. We know underneath all the twists and turns is a track that's going to get us home. And my hope for you as an individual, with all the chaos in our culture, that somehow in the middle of it, you wouldn't have the white-knuckle grip of control, of anxiety and anger, but you, you too could raise your hands and say, this plunge, this twist, this turn, whatever it may be, I know the Holy Spirit's going to bring me all the way home. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the preface. We're thankful for Paul and Silas's faithfulness. We're even thankful for their failings. We're thankful that you somehow are able to bring all these things to bear in a way that actually brings the gospel to the people that you want to hear. And sometimes that's a closed door. Sometimes that's a prayer meeting. Sometimes that's a prison cell. Would you strengthen your people with the truth of the word and trust in the Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.